Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You will remember, no doubt, that uh, we just had a substantial municipal tax increase. It was an unusual time, we were told. There was lots that was going on. There was lots of things that we had to deal with. Um, but it was it was a big over five percent increase. It was a it was a big nut for people to to take on here in the city. Well, now uh, four thousand inside and outside city of Hamilton employees being represented by QP five one six seven have voted uh, for strike action potentially for job action. They they're n- voting that they want more. the uh, The wage demands and what the city is offering are far apart. They say uh, pay increase priority one was the uh, was the explanation given by the union. So we can believe that they are worthy of their money. You can believe they're not worthy of money. That's really not the issue, I suppose, here. Uh, we knew, we know that people who work in public sector unions, they negotiate for pay increases. And I mean, that's how it works. That's how our system works, private sector or public system uh, workers. However, there does come a point where I want to bring in my next guest to talk about this, Larry Deany, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. Larry, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, my pleasure, Scott. So I'll tell you why I wanted to bring you on to ask about this, because you've sat around the council table, so you understand what the, some of the decisions are here. Let me just read you a few numbers to explain why this is a challenging issue for those who are going to be sitting there. Uh, 10 years or 2012, so 11 years ago, the city paid $629 million in salaries, wages, benefits, training, travel, those kind of things for its full-time staff. 2021, we paid $828 million. 2022, we paid $879 million, $50 million a year more. 2023, the budget that just passed was for $924 million. So it's gone up by another more than $50 million. Now, if we get pay increases that are, say, the, the rate of inflation or more, uh, we're going to be within a year or so, we're going to be touching a billion dollars. At, at what point do the people who are sitting around the council table have to make a decision between, do we simply keep raising taxes or does there come a spot when we have to pull back on some things? Well, you know, it uh, was ever thus, um, Scott, I remember when I was around the council table, which is a long time ago now. It's uh, you know been 20 years since uh, I looked at a, a municipal budget. But I um, uh, uh, the the uh, the budget at that time uh, was barely touching a billion dollars, and I'm talking about a combination of uh, of budgets, uh, the overall budgets. Now I think we're north of two billion. If yes. I, if yes. Research me correctly. So it's it's uh, it's doubled um, in in those decades. Um, and I recall being concerned about that. I mean, most of the councillors around the table were concerned about the pressures uh, that were um, mounting uh, against the taxpayer in terms of providing services, not an increase in services, but services that they were accustomed to getting, but because of inflation, uh, a reduction in grants from upper levels of government um, and, uh, and other sundry issues uh, we're putting pressure on on um, on the uh, on the budget, and we always look for ways of of reducing or making it uh, um, reasonable, um, staying within the inflationary uh, gap more than anything else. We're in different times now. We have a, a more activist uh, council. 
Um, they, um, um, in the name of being bold and different, um, have added uh, to uh, to the services that we get. Uh, in some cases, for good and justified reasons. In some cases, um, I think some of us believe maybe not for good and justified reasons, uh, but simply to uh, to adhere to some ideology rather than some practical use. And I'm talking specifically in this case about a decision that they made um, a little while ago uh, to uh, give a living wage to all the part-time workers, many of whom are students, by the way. Um, and that sounds nice, um, except that that, put, that added the, the pressure on, on budgets. And so when we get to our full-time employees, when they see that uh, even the part-time uh, workers, some of whom are students, um, getting, uh, you know, the full largesse that the, uh, that the municipal government can give, are saying, hey, we want our share too. And maybe for justified reasons as well. I don't know when the last uh, agreement was. I don't know whether there were any cutbacks or rollbacks as a result of COVID. Um, and so consequently now they're at the table asking for more as well. So what to do about it? That's the question. Uh, and do you hold the line? Do you reduce some services? Um, do you negotiate as fairly as you can? Or do you capitulate? I mean, those are the options that will be before council. And so far, this council has shown that it doesn't mind spending money. Uh, so my guess would be that um, they will try to strike as uh, as uh, a fair a uh, and balanced a, uh, a compromise as possible, but it'll probably tilt towards giving the union what it wants rather than holding the line. At what point, though, or is there a point? Maybe there's no point. I was going to say, at what point does it even... Does any council look at this and say, we can't do another 5% or 6% budget increase? We can't. We just have to. At what point do you look and say it's just because, look, each of these increases, if you look at them again, like from $828 million in 2021, $879, so that's a $51 million increase, now up to nine twenty four. Uh, it like it's growing year by year because you're building the increase each year on the increased amount from the previous increase. So it it exponentially picks up speed. We, we it's only going to get bigger and bigger chunks that it grows by. That's right, and and maybe we've reached that point. Remember the last budget uh, that was passed a few months back. Uh, there was a question as to whether there were enough votes around the table to pass that budget. It was uh, the mayor, Mayor Andrea Horvath, who actually came to the rescue of that budget by negotiating with staff a reduction, and I can't remember the number now, but from five point whatever to just under um, uh, 5%, if, if memory serves me correctly, and that allowed people to vote for that budget. Uh, and so um, there were a number of councillors, though, who at that last time said we're not voting for it and didn't vote for it for the first time in their um, electoral history um, in some cases. So we may have reached that point where people are simply saying enough is enough. But, you know, it'll take the, uh, the, uh, the homeowner, the taxpayer, the everyday taxpayer to sort of uh, call our counselors and say, um, you know, uh, no more, please, we just can't afford any more. Now, this is a very timely period, and, and probably you picked up on, on this story, uh, not only because of the strike vote by the QP um, uh, staff, or at least by the QP uh, members, uh, but also we're now receiving, just today, I got my tax notice for the year. Uh, and, uh, and in it, it tells 
you specifically what the increase was from last year. So it'll be top of mind uh, for the uh, for the taxpayers, for the property taxpayers in this community. And what we do with it, most of us will simply go and pay and absorb the uh, the ex- extra cost. But some people uh, may be just at the end of their rope and they're going to call the councillors and say, we just can't afford this. Enough is enough. Hold back, cut back, eliminate some of the... Uh, uh, the programs that you've got uh, that may be discretionary and may not be the ones that we need to move the city forward. Uh, and um, and maybe council will hear, listen, and, and perhaps it won't. But that's the triage that councillors will have to do when they get feedback. If they get no feedback, of course, uh, they assume that everybody's hunky-dory and, and forward we go. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, I, I, I made a... a, 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 a you know, a bit of a snarky observation about bike lanes um, um, a day or so ago, and uh, and uh, you know all the bike and 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 all I said essentially, um, I said it perhaps in a way that that some people took the wrong way, but all I said essentially was nobody. There are no cyclists on those lanes. Are we spending money wisely, or 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 words to that effect? Um, and so that that may be a discretionary item. If we don't have users for a certain program, do we want to go forward and add to that program? Now, all of the people who are bike enthusiasts have soundly told me that, yes, we need to do more. Uh, even the local counselor uh, in the area weighed in and, uh, and said, yes, we need to do, you know, this is why we've done it and, and we need to do more. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, his intent. Um, so, so that's the issue. The issue yeah. is, are there programs out there that could be discretionary and we might hold back on that? Yeah, not? that is going to be something that I think they're going to have to talk about. I mean, the, the union's going to get an increase. They're going to get paid, and they always do. And then it's going to be a question of, well, what else do we do? Do we just have more taxes or do we find something to save? Uh, Larry Deany, always appreciate it. Thanks for taking time today. Pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson is here. <laughs> The answer to the quiz question is not Don Robertson, <laughs> although wild man. I mean, maybe in the in in the past that was a name attributed to you. Thirty five years ago, maybe. Well, anyway, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here again. Yeah, you're welcome. Did you uh, did you enjoy watching golf yesterday? I assume you were watching. I did, of course, I did. It was unbelievable. Yeah, fifty nine years. Sixty nine. Sixty nine years. Uh, Seventy two feet six inches. That's that was that, and I was on Twitter earlier. And will it go down with with the historical significance of Paul Henderson's goal? You think so? No, no. But the question was, would it? Because yeah. it, it, today it's a big deal. And the reason I think it probably won't rival that is because we're more of a hockey country than a golf country. Uh, well, you know what? I, I think there's other reasons as well. I think that if this had been in a major. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it was a great event. It was a fantastic finish. There was nothing to complain about as far as the excitement and the drama and everything else. And, but it was not the field of a Masters or a U.S. Open. Um, that, well, that has an impact. So, like, I put, would you put this ahead of Mike Weir's Masters as far as Canadian golf moments? No. Neither would I. No. No, because that was a major. Um, and it was the major. The, the Masters is the event. It's, it's the Cadillac, yeah, without question. 
now the the significance of it has been so long. 100%. I mean, the leaps of one Stanley Cup since then. <laughs> that, and, when you can say that, you're saying something. And there are people that have retired since the Toronto Maple Leafs won a Stanley Cup. So f- from from a, a Canadian, I mean, for us, it, it is a major. It's our national championship. Yeah. Well, think of just stop for a second and think of what you just said. There are people, I hadn't really contemplated this, there are people who were born, went to school, worked their entire working life and have retired and been retired four years since we last had a Canadian win the Canadian Open. I mean, it is a long, long time. It's, it's, I wasn't alive. Yeah. No, it's and I was old as dirt. If, it, it, it's a remarkable thing. And, and as I, I said, we were saying earlier in the show, and I, I really believe this to be true, it might have been more impressive if he had just won it straight out by six strokes or something. But I don't know that in five years that would have been memorable. We would still remember that Nick yep. Taylor won. Great point. But it's the way he won it, the drama and the four overtime holes, four yeah. extra holes and the long putt. Everybody is going to remember this. Yeah, we had um, um, Gord, uh, Gord Forth and, the, and uh, his wife Barb were over for dinner and they had been to the Canadian Open. And we're, of course, we're watching it and I'm barbecuing and it's like it'll it'll be over in 20 minutes, so put this on. And then we get four, but we, I mean, we watched it. I mean, yeah. it was, but it was, he, everybody's hoping he gets it close enough. Right. That he can birdie it. But I mean, think about that. On the fourth overtime or fourth extra hole, you drop a 72 footer for an eagle and people that aren't golfers, that's two under what yeah, the par good. is. It's pretty good. You got a three on a par five. And I was down there on Friday, uh, to do something on Mackenzie Hughes. And, uh, and I only say that because when you're walking the course, that 18th green, it doesn't, you don't see on TV how, and this is a word we only use in golf, how undulating that green is. Like it is really a steep uphill that you have to get it up to. Cause if you don't get it there, it's going to roll right back down and probably roll off the green. That was the thing. If he had not get, <clears throat> if he hadn't hit it hard enough, it's not just that he might have had a four or five footer left. He might have had a 40 footer left. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you, but I, it, it's, again, it's really hard to talk about this without sounding like you're being a spoil sport if you don't put it in the Paul Henderson category right away. But I think you can have a fantastic, memorable, exciting, tremendous moment that we all jumped up and down and thought this was wonderful without immediately putting it at the very top of the list. It's worthy. I mean, it was in, in golf history, you compared it to Mike Weir winning the masters and that Mike Weir winning the masters set Mike Weir up financially for the rest of his life. Sure. Nick Taylor has now been set up financially for the rest of his life by virtue of being a Canadian and winning the Canadian open that way. That way. That way. Or or at all. But in that fashion, really is a cherry on top. I still think that even if he had won it and it had been dominating, he might, he would be remembered by the golf fans, the serious golf fans in 10 years. But I think that Nick Taylor will be now be remembered by people who were not serious golf fans because they all were dragged to their TV because of what was going on. Or they've all seen the replay in the last 24 hours. 
So let me let me throw this out there. If Nick Taylor put his ball mark down from where he putted it from yes. and made that putt, and and somebody said, I'm going to pay you to make that putt again, he would still be standing there hitting his 12,000th putt and not have done it a second time. He, well, he might he might have made it, but I would have uh, I would go with you within the first fifty to sixty putts that he would not make. I mean, that was the longest putt he's ever hit on on tour. And here's the amazing part: most of, of them you can't hit it seventy two feet. They're well, not that big. The amazing thing too about this, there's a lot of amazing things, is if you or I, if we had a putt not even seventy two feet, if we had a five foot putt, just playing with our buddies, and let's say one of your buddies was. I mean, pick the richest guy that lives has lived in this city. Let, let's say you're you were great friends with Charles Jurvinsky or whomever. Ron Joyce. Ron Joyce, who golfed, who was an avid golfer. And let's say Ron Joyce, just because he could, said, "You've got a five foot putt, Don. I tell you what, you sink this, I will give you a million dollars." It just become a twenty five footer. Y- your knees would become weak various orifices on your body, you'd have a hard time keeping closed and you would be basically seeing double. You would barely be able to, the, the, the pressure of having to hit that now with the, what's on the line is enormous. So I actually think probably in this, you know, you may think I'm nuts. I think having a 72 footer, while I never expect he would make that, was probably an easier for him to hit than if it was a 12 footer that he had to hit to keep the tournament going. Because nobody thought he was going to sink that one, well, including you, him probably. You bring up the significance of his of his putt on 18 for for birdie. Exactly. Which was a 12-footer. I think a, that was a harder a, putt. With a bend in it. I think that was, a, I, clearly the degree of difficulty of a 72-foot putt is off the charts. But nobody expects you to sink that one. As you say, you're trying to get it close. I think that one on 18 where he had to sink it going downhill for 12 or 13 feet, mentally, that's a way harder putt to make. Yes. It is. It is, yeah. Because again, all he's Because without it, you're done. Without it, you're done. And all he's trying to do on this one is get it close. It was absolutely perfect. I think if if he, he's probably thinking, if I can get this thing within five feet, I'm golden. Exactly. I, I think ex- that's exactly what he was thinking, and it would still be a really tough putt under the circumstances. But look at how many putts did um, Fleetwood? Fleetwood. How many? How many potential winning putts of ten or eleven feet did Fleetwood have in extra holes? Did he have three that he could have won each time? We were watching it, and the first time he was up, I said, "Well, now he's the only guy that can win the tournament." Three times. Yep. You and know, each you, time he just missed. You know what it reminded me of, and and I don't know if you'll if you were watching, when VJ Singh and Mike Weir went into mm. overtime, I don't think VJ Singh would throw a tournament, but he missed two five-footers to give Mike Weir a chance. I swear he did, and he didn't. And then when he won, he apologized to the Canadian fans and Mike Weir. I saw Tommy Fleetwood's uh, uh, tweet. Tweet. Did you see yeah, it today? Very classy. Thank you very much, Canada. It was great. You know, congratulations to Nick Taylor. And it was just over-the-top classy. Back to work tomorrow. If you are going to lose and you lose to a 72-foot bending uphill putt, yeah. you take off your hat and you go, 
Okay. Now, he did have those three chances before when he could have put it away. So it's he, he can't complain that it's he didn't It's on him. Yep. Yeah. yeah. He can't complain that he didn't have chances. But, again, I would I, every single time, every single day of the week, I would take a putt like Nick Taylor had. I would never sink it, but I would take that one with a chance to two-putt over a 12-footer that you have to sink. How, Oakdale was the course, right? Yep, yep. So how many members of Oakdale are going to do what every, every one of them, every member did at Glen Abbey and every guy that played Glen Abbey for 10 years after Tagger hit a five iron out of the bunker, out of the bunker to within 12 feet? The difference is, I think, that they always move the hole around, the pin location on the green. Although, you know what, they may... They, they, what they might start doing, if they were, I would love it. If I was a member, every time the whole location is there, put a little white spray paint dot, dot yeah. where the ball was so you could all take a take a crack at it. Or start putting it there Regu- every every second Sunday. Yeah. Right? So, so you got a shot at it. Every, yeah. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It would be, uh, and they would all do it. They would all do it. And, you know, even if the course is busy, you'd, everyone would put a ball down and just it would slow it a little bit. But yeah. sure you would. And Somebody's going to try it. You and I would try it. Absolutely I would. I, I, and as I say, I wouldn't come within 15 feet of I'd it. I'd probably put it off the green. <laughs> well, yeah, I probably would too. All right. So here's the question. Because you started by talking about this. And so let's, let's ask this question. Where does Nick Taylor's moment fall in Canadian sports moments? Where and, and I don't know how you want to describe this. I mean, as far as dramatic, it was very dramatic. But if it's just drama and it's not important, that's a tricky one. But as far as important sports moments, what, do you still have Henderson at top? Yes. Who would you have second in that list? Ben there? Johnson. It's fun. Yeah. See, I don't know if I'd have him second. And everyone says, "Well, Ben Johnson was disqualified." I, of course. Everybody cheated in that race. He was just. The fastest cheater. Beyond that, though, every single Canadian not only was watching that race, yep. but we hated Carl Lewis so much. Ben Johnson had to win that race. Yep. And yeah, there was a rival. Oh, a- it was a- and an evil. Yeah, and and when he won, there were not many moments. Honestly, now obviously we know what happened forty-eight hours later or whatever, but there were not many moments. I don't think in Canadian history where you've had the country feeling as good about itself collectively. To get that excited for 11 seconds. 9.96, Less than 11. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, but okay. So, all right. So I, I would have Ben in my top 10. I don't know if I'd have him at number two, but okay. Who else would you put in there? What else would you put? What other sports moments would you put in there? Joe Carter. Touch them all, Joe. Touch them all. I, absolutely. I had him right up there. Um, Sidney Crosby's golden goal. Uh, yep. Yep. Um, Donovan Bailey. Yep. The winning and then winning the four by 100. The first time the Americans had ever lost in a four by 100 the next night in Atlanta. Yep. And uh, who was the kid that had a blast off on his head? Um, Robert Esme. Um, Greg Joy's silver medal at the Montreal uh, Olympics. Interesting. Interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't had that one on my list. Silver medal. Silver medal. But it was our first, and it was if, when they would turn off the TV every night. With the national anthem, they always played Greg Joy. That's how big a deal, which we forget. Well, you got <laughs> but here, let me give you a couple other ones to put in there. Find some some homes for it or not. Uh, Hang on, I, I got one more. Okay, um, Tony Gabriel's catch in Hamilton. Um, Hamilton or Ottawa? 
No. It was in Ottawa, wasn't it? The over was, the, the over the shoulder with wasn't the two the game, hand. Wasn't the game at Ivor win? I don't think so. Okay. I think it was Ottawa, but someone can correct me on that one. Tony Gabriel's from here. Tony's probably listening. Tony can call in and correct us on where that where that catch was. Um, I had uh, world the first World Series too when the ball was tossed to Joe Carter. Ironically yeah. enough, playing first base. That would if based on and I'm basing this on importance and overall celebration and. Anyway, let me keep going here. Uh, you mentioned Sidney Crosby. Mike Weir, who we obviously yep. mentioned, has to be in there. Terry Fox somehow has to be yes. on the list. Um, Bianca Andreescu winning the U.S. Open. The Raptors Championship. And I would even put on this list, and maybe women's Olympic soccer gold in the last Olympics maybe, but I would also put, it's a weird one, but Vince Carter's slam dunk championship back at the All-Star Game. That changed basketball in this country forever. And I don't know, so we, we, between you and I, we've come up with 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, plus Nick Taylor. I don't know where, I, I don't know that Nick Taylor goes into my top 10, which maybe he does, and maybe time will, you know, will change that easily, but. This week he does. But Greg Joy was 76 Olympics, Ron Foxcroft was refereeing the gold medal no. basketball game. So that was a while ago. So what has to be in the top 10 then? I would say Henderson has to be top 10. Yep. We didn't even mention Gretzky to Lemieux, at, or Lemieux to Gretzky, yeah. Gretzky to Lemieux at uh, Cops. Henderson has to be in there. Terry Fox has to be in there. Joe Carter has to be in there. Um, Mike Weir has to be in there. I'm with you that Ben Johnson has to be in there. Sidney Crosby probably has to be in there, maybe. Well, we'll put him off for a second. I think based on what happened with basketball, you've got to put either the Raptors Championship or Vince Carter Slam Dunk Championship in there. I would put the Raptors Championship in. All right. It was was pretty big news. I mean, I watch more basketball in that six weeks than I've watched – in my entire life, and I don't, still don't watch much of it. I do have a greater appreciation for the athleticism of those guys. Donovan Bailey, either individually or as the team, <clears throat> has to go in there. Yes. Uh, we didn't include Barbara Ann Scott winning the gold medal, which is before our time, but at the time was absolutely enormous uh, as a fi- for figure skating. And uh, I didn't include either of Bianca Andreescu or the women's Olympic soccer gold, but we're there's eight or to possibly nine. So maybe Nick Taylor gets himself in there, but it's it's not as easy, Don, as like a lot of people on Twitter and social media and everything saying, oh, top top two, top three. I don't think it's that easy. We've got a lot of great sports moments in this country. We have, and we haven't even mentioned the come from behind 2023 Allen Cup Championship by the Dundas Real McCoys. <laughs> no, we haven't. Although that could, you know, we'll, we'll debate that one and possibly put that one in it. That but. might knock Sid out. And again, we didn't, that does not include Gretzky to Lemieux. That doesn't include, um, the first world series. Like we've left out a bunch of stuff here, but it's tough. It's, it's, if this had been a major tournament, I don't think there's any question the way it finished and what happened, it's top three. But it's a major tournament in Canada. It used to be a major. Yes. And, but it's our national championship and a Canadian won it for the first time in 69 years. That. That cannot go unnoticed. Agreed. Now, you're, you're, you're right. The significance of it probably shouldn't matter, but the dramatic fashion of dropping a 72-footer 
in extra holes is pretty outstanding. All right. right. If he wins it by three going away, oh, it's cool. Yeah. All right. So let me throw another one. If we're just doing drama within, let's, for the, going back for the past decade, if we're just doing drama, more dramatic, that win or Jose Bautista's bat flip at the end of that seventh inning, the way everything had gone down in that inning. Oh, I think Nick Taylor's. You think so? Yeah, I think I think Batista, because it was to win. Batista's Batista's more th- uh, theater, right? It's, and controversy. Yeah, I mean, with well, that one, with that one, you have to look at it in the scope of the entire inning that happened. Nick Taylor's though, you have to look at it in the scope of the four extra holes. I mean, it's that's a tough one though. That's a so here here's one we haven't talked about. And this was to get the Raptors to the final. Kawhi Leonard's shot from the, the corner doing, the doing, doing, doing. bounced off the rim 76 times before it went down. Yep, yep. absolutely. That, and I never mentioned that one. Uh, oh, and we just got a note from Craig saying Ryder Hestadal winning the uh, the hero. All right, well, that's a, a cyclist. And we've had some great cyclists in this yep. country, no question. Um, and you know what? There are other people who are going to say we didn't include Penny Alexiak winning a whole bunch of medals, you know, in the Olympics. Yeah. We didn't. There, are, look, you. There are tons of other ones that we have not talked about that we could have put on this list. We didn't talk about any of the gold medals or the world championships that the women's hockey have won, right? And so I guess what we should do is expand it to top twenty. It'll be easier for us. I would say that unquestionably, Nick Taylor, under any circumstances, in the top twenty. Sure. And he's probably in the top 10. And again, it just, it depends on how you define it. Because if it's based on most exciting moment, not most important, not most meaningful, not whatever. If it's simply most exciting moment, I would say he's in the top 10. Maybe Kawhi is. Well, if it's, if it's most exciting moment, moment, not, doesn't matter about the importance of it. Henderson probably still with everything is there. Donovan Bailey is going well, to be there. To tell you how long it took for that ball that he shot from the corner to drop, Ben Johnson won a world championship. Almost, almost. But, I mean, if it's most exciting moment, you take Terry Fox out because that wasn't a moment. Um, you know, you take out a number of these, but it's, boy, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. It's, uh, and you know, and the Blue Jays have had three of these probably in the last five years. You had, if you're not going to just have Bautista, you've also got uh, Edwin Encarnacion beating the Orioles. Yeah. And yes. you had the Donaldson dash against Texas the next year to win the series when they, when they beat Texas again. It's, I mean, again, it's, we are, we are spoiled when you really sit down and start to think about it, we are spoiled by how many amazing moments that we've had, most of them in our lifetime. All but Barbara Ann's gotten mine. And there's a couple others that have, you know, I, I never included, you know what else I never included in the, not the most exciting, but the most important, I never included Marilyn Bell swimming Lake Ontario. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. Yeah, well, that's a tremendous athletic feat. I don't know if it was exciting. No, that's what I'm saying. It was uh, it was in the first category. What do you yep. put in the top ten all time greatest feats or greatest things? But yeah, it's not the most exciting, unless you were there for the last few strokes. Well, Wayne Gretzky scoring 212 points in 14 games was pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't that wasn't in a moment. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a career and a season. And, but you're right. There is a different category of significance and excitement. Yeah. 
but you know what? I, I, I would say that Nick Taylor nudges his way in. Yep. He is dancing in the top 10 of both. I'm not sure where he gets. And again, maybe in five years we'll look back on this and it'll either take a step back or it'll grow in lore and it'll force its way in where, oh, for sure that's in there. You know what's not fading is Henderson's goal. No, and we never included Brooke Henderson. You know, yeah. like there's a, as I say, there's, there's a, but you could have a real full scale barnyard argument with this one. If you got down with a bunch of people and brought out the alcohol and put it all up on a board <laughs> and said, sort it out. You have a drinking game combined with this. You would be there for a long time. Let maybe, me maybe George Chevallo fighting George Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Going the distance with and Muhammad never, Ali. Never getting knocked down. It, we could go on and on. There are a ton. Um, so I don't know if you watched the Ticat season opener on Friday. Uh, I think the best word to describe it might be stinky. They were not good. The defense was okay in the second half, pretty good. And the special teams were pretty good in the sp- second half, but the offense, not so much. So you've been, I say this every time we talk about this, you've been in sports a long time. What kind of import do you place upon the first game of any season? Not much. See, that's what I'm thinking. I put a lot more emphasis on the last game. Yeah, that's probably helpful. Um, but the thing that would drive me nuts if I'm, there are bigger Ticat fans out there than me, and I'm a Ticat fan, but I mean, there are diehards, right? That Claris thing's going to keep coming back to well. bite you all the time when he does that, and you bring in uh, Bo to save the day, and it didn't start well. And I read a bit of Steve Milton's column, and half their starters are new. Yeah. So nobody wants to get their butt kicked right off the bat. But by all accounts, they've got a pretty good football team. And and Hamilton notoriously never come out of the gate. You could probably go back decades before they're eight and one or this is seven and two. This is stunning to me, Don, when you mentioned that. The Ticats, as Steve pointed out, the Ticats are two out of their last 17 in season openers. How is that even possible? I didn't read the whole, really. They have won two of their last 17 season openers. That's that's almost impossible to fathom. I don't know how you consistently. Yeah. Those odds to be two and 17 are really bad. Now, and it would, it would really be interesting, and you probably have it right in front of you on the computer, is... They probably played a lot of crappy teams and teams that weren't as good as them as them out of the seventeen. Like maybe five of them they were outmatched for the entire season yeah, and had four years. But you, two out of seventeen? Usually and maybe someone will correct me on this and tell me that I'm imagining this, but it seems to me that lately anyway, they always seem to start in the West. They always seem to start with a Western team. And for whatever reason, they always seem to start with either the Grey Cup champ or a team that was really, really good. And so, there, I mean, in recent years, there's kind of an explanation. I mean, they, I think they've played Calgary a few times to start and whatever. But um, anyway, here is, so I, I put as bad as they were on offense, and they looked just completely out of sync. They just did not look good at all. I put about zero concern on that game. Yep. Because I think Bo Levi Mitchell played two series in the one exhibition game and none in the second. He didn't even dress for the second one and you've got all new players. That may have been a mistake unless you're trying to protect them and keep them from getting banged up. But I, I, 
when you get to the end of July, your last game in July is against Ottawa. By then you will have now, you've have played Winnipeg, you'll have Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Edmonton, Toronto, then Ottawa again. You've got a very favorable schedule. If after they play Ottawa on July 28th, the offense doesn't look good, then I think you've got to have some concern. If you've got a third of the season looked after and you still can't put it together, that's when I think you get concerned. But now? No, it doesn't matter. No. And and traditionally, you're right. The East seemed to travel to the West in an an inordinate amount early in the season. And I don't know. I, I don't know if they do any more of that. We're going to play Calgary, and four days later we're playing Edmonton. I don't know if they do that anymore and never come back. I'm sure that was a cost-saving measure when you're flying 70 people across Canada and feeding them, and those guys won't be cheap to feed. Um, But they always seem to play, if they're going west, it's early. And, sadly, historically I believe this to be fairly true, the uh, west are generally a better division than the east. Almost always. Yep. Almost always. No, I, I, I watched it and, and you know, I, I, I didn't get to listen to all of the fifth quarter with, with Rick after the game. Um, at halftime, I thought this is going to be one of the all-time legendary fifth quarters. Because if, they had, if it had continued the way it was going, with all the changes and everything else and bringing in Bolivar, I mean, I don't care that people should have patience. You go there and you get absolutely obliterated. People we know, fans are fans. And we that's why the fifth quarter is such an entertaining show sometimes. People will lose their minds. The fact that they had some defensive turnovers and fumble recoveries for touchdowns or almost for touchdowns and block punt, I mean, they made it close, held things off a little bit. You don't get a lot of marks for coming back when the other team's home and cooled out. Yeah, it's like I, a I, hockey game. You're down seven two and ends up seven five. It's not much of a reflection. Yeah, you haven't guys, played your top two lines and no, nobody's on the power play. And, they throw it neutral, right? Yeah, no, I, it, I, as I say, I, I saw this yesterday. I saw this on Friday. I watched the game and I thought I think there's going to be some people, especially by halftime. People are going to be getting a little weirded out by this, and it, it, there's no need to. There's no need to yet. No, and You've, and they may well have played the best team in the CFL. Probably. So right. you've got the best team in the CFL, and you your starting quarterback has, I think, thrown six passes in the entire preseason. Yeah. Um, again, I, I'm I'm putting nothing on grading anything until the end of July. Yeah, that's you've fair. got six or seven games by then. And keep one other thing in mind, Don. They could go. How many games do they have before Labor Day? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They got ten games. You. In the CFL, especially in the East, you could go 0-10 and, and still make the playoffs and still make a run to the Grey Cup that you're hosting. Is And isn't that constantly a challenge for the CFL? Yeah. Like when they say the season the season really starts in Labor Day. It's a great advertising campaign, I suppose, because you've got nothing else to say about it, but it doesn't say much for why you need to go and buy tickets to the fourth game of the year. I was going to say, it's hard to sell your product. Yeah. It's probably harder to sell your home home opener when you get waxed like that opening night. Yeah, I, 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 I don't have concerns at this point. And, you know, one other thing that Steve Milton, 
mentioned, which I think was a very astute observation, was the year that Jason Moss came to Hamilton from Edmonton, he could not throw a deep ball when he got here. His arm was all messed up. His shoulder was messed up. So he could not, he was damaged goods when he arrived. Bo Levi Mitchell overthrew some of his receivers. So it's not that, I mean, he has had some injuries in recent years, but he wasn't looking like, oh, you've got a banged up, beat up, broken down Bo Levi Mitchell shell of himself. That wasn't the case. So it's just a question of aligning the sights and getting things in tune. That Who, was Who's their backup? Uh, Matt Schiltz. Where, where's Dane Evans? He is jettisoned. We got rid of him. Oh, yeah. Yep, and but, they kept him over Caleros. Long story. Caleros, don't forget, Caleros had had a, it's amazing Caleros is still playing with the concussions that he had, but he has been keeping himself clean and safe and keeping his head from getting banged around, and he's been phenomenal. He, probably a bad analogy, he's been lights out. <laughs> he's been lights on is what he's been. Don, there, there was a suggestion today, there was a story by Bruce Garriock in the Ottawa Sun about the sale of the Ottawa Senators, which matters to us only because Michael Anlauer, Hamilton guy, owner of the Bulldogs, is in the running. And who will immediately bring the team to Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, uh, would that be something? Uh, no. Uh, but it's down, it seems, to two people. They had all kinds of bidders in this, but it's been dragged out and dragged out. And the suggestion that some are making is that the NHL has overplayed its hand here. That, that they're trying to squeeze record amounts out or something, and now... They're lo- I mean, if they lose one more bidder. Last, sud- last man standing. Well, last man standing, but the last man standing is suddenly going to say, well, wait a sec, I'm not paying a billion for this. I'm the only guy here. Like, <laughs> it, do they run the risk of pushing too hard with this team? Would they be better off just to take your 900 million or whatever insane amount it is already and just sell it and get it moving along? Well, let me ask you this. I mean, is is, is the reason some of these bids are leaving is because of the scrutiny that the some of the owners and partners have to go through maybe for the National Hockey League. Um, and you know me, this thing will come down to money. And the only thing I would bet a lot of money on is Michael Landelar has as much or more cash to buy the Ottawa Senators and the least amount of leverage of anybody that's bid. Leverage as in like t- tapped out leverage, not uh, yeah. Like he yeah. he will. Uh, my guess is he he will finance the least amount, if anything at all. But he will finance the least amount of anybody else's bid. And if the National Hockey League are looking at it and the Radley and Robertson bid is a million, uh, one point two billion, and they're going, well, they only got forty five thousand down. Let me ask you before we go, because we're up against time here. If And we don't know any of the numbers. It's all done in secret. If Michael Anlauer put up $900 billion, but he is a known quantity that they trust and they like and they believe in, and the other group that they don't know as well puts up a billion, if you're the NHL, do you take the extra $100 million and take your risk on the owner, or do you take the known quantity and take a tiny bit less? I think you take Michael Andler. That's what, see, that's what I think you do, because you had some crazy owners in this league that have not worked out well for you. Well, and that's and that's what's happened, I think, in the past, is that they, and I forget the guy's name that was buying teams, that it was part of Atlanta and part of Nashville, and they, they didn't do the scrutiny they should on the ownership group and the financing. Who was the guy that bought the um, New York Islanders with about 48 cents in mm-hmm. his pocket? 
Yeah, I can't. Spa- Sparos? Sp- Spanos. Spanos, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's we'll see. We'll see. But there's, there's Michael now- may get it because he has the credibility and assuredly is much or more cash than anybody else in that bid. Uh, Don, thanks for coming in on your birthday. Yeah, you're welcome, Scott. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.